0: In 1990, Yen Soaring was sentenced to life in prison for the murders of Derek and Nancy Haysom. and the prosecution's star witness in his trial in the Bedford County courtroom was his ex-girlfriend, Elizabeth Haysom.
1: You know, her testimony didn't do him any good. She walked him into prison.
0: Elizabeth testified that Jens drove to Bedford County and killed her parents because he loved her and they didn't approve of their relationship. Jens maintained that he originally confessed to the crime to save Elizabeth, the real killer, from the death penalty. The jury believed Elizabeth's version and sent Jens to prison for life.
1: This is a prepaid debit call from... Jens Zuring, An inmate at the Virginia Department of Corrections, Buckingham Correctional...
0: We interviewed Jens in October of 2019. High security prisons in Virginia don't allow recording devices inside. So we did our interview by phone. When we talked to Jens, he had spent more than 30 years behind bars. If we could go to the night of their murders, where were you that day?
2: The scholarship I had came with lots of spending money. And Elizabeth and I would occasionally rent hotel rooms to have sex because in a college dormitory, there are always roommates you know, getting in the way, frankly. On that weekend, we decided to get away, get out of town, uh, go to Washington, D.C., and have a fun weekend in Washington, D.C.
0: Jens and Elizabeth agree. They rented a car and drove to Washington, D.C., the weekend Elizabeth's parents were murdered. But from there, their stories diverge. While Elizabeth said Jens drove the 200 miles to Bedford to kill her parents, Jens has a different story. He says on Saturday at lunch, Elizabeth confessed to him that she was still doing drugs, and she'd run up a large debt with a drug dealer who was a fellow UVA student named Jim Farmer. His father, a judge, and he was friends with the Hasems.
2: He wanted her to pay off this debt by transporting drugs from Washington to Charlottesville uh, that weekend, today, right now. Um, and of course I said, no, look, you know, I've got plenty of money, I'll just pay off your debt. And then you don't have to do this, right? And she said, no, it's too late. Uh, I have to do this. It's the only way I can get out from under. And then for sure, I'm going to quit this time. And like an idiot, I believed her. She explained it so that I I believed that just me paying off the debt would not work, that she had to do this. So the next thing was that I wanted to come with her, right? And she said, no, absolutely not. You're just too straight. You know, any, any any drug dealer is not going to want to do anything around you because you don't look like a junkie. Um, they're not going to trust you. So you can't come with me. I accepted that. Uh, then she said she basically had to leave right now.
0: Elizabeth said he should stay in Washington, D.C. and buy more movie tickets for both of them, so it would appear she'd been there the whole time, in case her parents found out. Jens agreed to stay in Washington to be her alibi but he said he had no idea what he was covering for. He bought two tickets for two movies that day, and when Elizabeth still hadn't returned, he decided to go to the midnight showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. When that ended around 2 a.m., Yen said he went back to the hotel alone.
2: Very shortly after I got there, she's knocking on the door, and I open up the door, and she's standing there. And I could tell immediately she's, you know, She's in really bad shape. She looks like she's in shock. She's very, very pale, just looking, just shattered, and she's wearing different clothes than what she was wearing earlier in the afternoon. I specifically remember uh, the jeans. She, she was now wearing jeans with cargo pockets uh, on the sides. So she walked right past me and sat down on the end of the bed in the hotel room and sort of leaned forward and put her elbows on her knees. And I could not see her right forearm um, because it was turned the other way, but I could see her left forearm, the inside of her left forearm. um, I could see there was something brown smeared on it. And when she started talking, I figured out that must be blood. But her hands were clean. Her hands were clean.
0: Yen says Elizabeth kept saying the same thing over and over
2: said, I've, I've killed my parents, the drugs made me do it, they deserved it anyway. And she said, you have to help me, if you don't help me they're going to fry me. Back then, this was in the mid-1980s, Virginia used the electric chair to execute people, and it was a common expression back then to fry somebody.
0: That's when Jens says Elizabeth brought up the movie tickets
2: was not looking at me when she was saying that. And then she then she turned to the right and looked at me and she said, you have to say that I was with you. You have to be my alibi. you still got the movie tickets, right? You, ha- you have to say I went to the movies with you. And then I interrupted her and said, look, that is never going to work. That's not going to work. The police do not believe husbands, wives, and boyfriends, and girlfriends. And the movie tickets don't prove anything. The movie tickets are not an alibi. That's a joke. This is not going to work. That can't be your alibi. They're not going to believe me. And I remember she was turned to her, her right, sort of looking up at me a little bit, and her mouth was open, and she was just, she had nothing. She was just blank. So she was looking up at me, and she was just blank. And I was looking to my left at her, and, you know, I really didn't have anything either. I was, I was just sort of empty, sort of stunned. And I was obviously shocked myself because you have to remember, at that point, right, I was 18 years old. I was like a mini Sheldon Cooper. Nothing bad had ever happened to me. Um, I hadn't even been in a fight since eighth grade in school, you know. It's like violence was not part of my life. This was the girl I loved, and she's telling me she's total parents. So I was just wiped. I was just stunned. And I had nothing to say for a while.
0: That's when Yen says he made an impulsive decision.
2: Then this idea kind of flopped out all at once, sort of as a whole package. And I I didn't think about it. I just said it. It's kind of difficult to understand. I didn't, I didn't, Think about this. It was just there. The idea was there. and I said it. I'm, I'm going to take the rest. I'm going to tell the police that I did this, because my father has diplomatic immunity. I said this to there. Look, you know, I've got diplomatic immunity. You know, all that's going to happen to me is that they're going to kick me out of the country, send me back to Germany, and then they'll put me on trial in Germany for this crime. That, you know, I'm going to tell them I did. And. At that time, under German law, I would have been tried as a juvenile. So the maximum sentence was 10 years, of which you serve about half, right? So I was willing to trade five to 10 years of my life to save her life. And that seemed like a fair trade to me, okay? Because I was convinced, and I think it's true, that they they would have executed her. They would have put her in the electric chair for killing her parents. Right? And I could stop that. I could save her life by sacrificing a few years of my own life. And this was a girl I loved.
0: His decision was inspired by a literary classic.
2: I remember specifically thinking about Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities, which we had just done in my senior year in high school in English class. Right? And... One of the characters, Sidney Clark, sacrifices himself for the woman he loves. The point is, he went to the guillotine for the woman he loved. And that's that famous speech he holds in the book, right? It is a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better risk I go to than I have ever known. Right? And I thought I was a hero saving the woman I loved, from being fried to death in the electric chair. So we spent the rest of that night rehearsing my confession, my false confession. For some reason, we had this idea that the police would be, like, hot on her trail, and they would be arriving, like, in the morning. Because it seemed obvious to us, you know, that they were going to know that, you know, she was involved because she was the... Notoriously rotten daughter of Derek and Nancy
0: Ingsson, right? It wasn't so obvious to investigators. In fact, Elizabeth and Yen spent the days after the murders in Bedford with family and friends mourning the deaths. They traveled to Europe that summer, and in the fall, they started their second year at the University of Virginia. It wasn't until six months after the murders that Elizabeth became a suspect, and that's when they fled the country.
2: We were on the run for about five months, from November 1985 till the end of April 1986. And our original plan was to go to a third world country and basically live there for the rest of our lives legally and get jobs.
0: They ended up in Bangkok, Thailand, where Jens was born, but their money quickly ran out.
2: So Elizabeth had her usual stupid ideas. She wanted to rob tourists or smuggle heroin. And I said, no, that's not happening. And um, um, I went to the library there. Uh, the, the British embassy had a library called the British Council. And I went there and read some books on British banking and figured out how to do a check fraud by reading books in the library in Bangkok, Thailand. And... Um, <laughs> um, At that time, it was very easy to get forged documents in Bangkok, and we did that. We got forged driver's licenses, forged certificates of citizenship, and forged certified copies of passports. Back then, that was really easy and dirt cheap. And once we got those documents, we went back to Europe and went to England and um, set up bank accounts in false names and uh, did check frauds to just, just... just to have money to live on, because we you know, we, we were running out of money. There was no way to get a legal job without giving our real names, and we believed that we were being pursued by the American police.
0: A little over a year after the murders, Jens and Elizabeth were arrested by British authorities for check fraud, and that's when American police did finally catch up with them. Jens kept his promise to Elizabeth and confessed to the murders
2: police station on June the 5th, that was a Thursday, and the judge said that they could question us for four days, from Thursday, June the 5th, until Sunday, June the 8th. I wanted to talk to my lawyer before I gave my false confession to make sure that I really did have diplomatic immunity. So, for the first three days, I didn't say anything. But I kept asking for my lawyer over and over and over again, and they would not give me my lawyer. And this is on tape, okay? So this is not there's no question about this there. Are many requests of mine for a lawyer on tape. It's also in the police's own handwritten notes that I asked for a lawyer.
0: After three days in custody, Jens felt like it was now or never, and he confessed.
2: I'm still- you know, like 99% sure that I had diplomatic immunity, and I decided to go ahead and keep my promise without talking to a lawyer first. And that turned out to be a terrible mistake, um, because it turned out I did not have immunity. I'd held out for three and a half days, right? I could have held out for another half a day, right? It wouldn't have been hard. I felt I had to keep my promise, because if I didn't keep my promise... They were going to execute Elizabeth in the electric chair. And I I told the police the story that Elizabeth and I had cooked up 14, 15 months earlier in that hotel room.
0: Four years later, Jens was back in Virginia and on trial in Bedford County, facing life in prison for the murders of Derek and Nancy Hasem. Lynchburg Cablevision presents same-day coverage of the Yen Soaring trial from the Bedford County Circuit Court. Brought to you as a public service by Lynchburg Cablevision. The Bedford County Circuit Court is an imposing brick building with white columns on Main Street. Just down the block, a building that was known as Green's Drugstore during World War II. With its popular soda fountain, it was a gathering place for locals. And in the back of the drugstore was a small Western Union telegraph office. On July 17, 1944, a flurry of messages came through, one after another. Nineteen Bedford boys dead on a beach in Normandy. The community of just 4,000 people lost more young men per capita than any other town in the United States. To this day, black banners hang on the streets to mark the loss, and a memorial to the Bedford boys brings thousands of visitors every year. Between Bedford's history and the Haysom's high profile in the community, Yen's attorney feared that his client, the son of a German diplomat with a heavy German accent, wouldn't get a fair trial. He tried to have it moved, but Judge William Sweeney denied the request. He did agree to busing jurors from nearby Nelson County. Yen's attorney also tried to get Judge Sweeney to recuse himself because he'd gone to high school and college with Nancy Haysom's brother, He'd also presided over Elizabeth's sentencing, but most troubling were comments he'd made to Amy Lemley for her article about Elizabeth that was on stands during Yen's trial. In the article, Judge Sweeney is quoted as saying, As far as the acts themselves, I don't think she planned them out. It was like, double dare you. I think she was shocked he took the dare. He essentially endorsed the state's case against Yen's prior to trial. As a journalist, that's gold. And on I went. I wrote the article. It came out a couple of years after we had that conversation. When it came out, people read that. They were interested because Sweeney was presiding over Jens' trial also. David Fokey, that radio reporter in Roanoke, had lived in Bedford for a time and was familiar with all the characters in the trial, including prosecutor Jim Updike and Judge Sweeney.
1: I, I don't remember any questions like that coming up about his, his Germanness and the whole, the Bedford boys and all that. It was much more a case of, he was just such an obvious outsider. I mean, one of the things to keep in mind through this whole trial was that you had this incredible local hometown aspect to it where, you know, Sweeney knew the haysomes and Updike was this character in town and you had all this and everybody knew everybody. And there was, you know, Sweeney's refusal to move the case out of Bedford. He wanted it there. You had these sheriff and the sheriff's deputies that were such characters and sort of these classic Southern small County kind of guys. And, in comes this squirrely little German kid and this out-of-town lawyer, and they just couldn't have been more out of place. E- even with a jury that was brought in from Nelson, I mean, they were looking at him like, you're really out of place. And you wonder when you look back at it and you go, well, how much did that factor in? And and who knows?
0: Jens took the stand in his own defense, saying he confessed the murders to protect Elizabeth. During the cross-examination, Prosecutor Updike asked Jens about a letter he wrote to Elizabeth shortly after he confessed. In the letter that Elizabeth shared with prosecutors as part of her plea agreement, Jens called the Bedford County investigators yokels. During cross-examination, Updike asked Jens why he insulted investigators by essentially calling them dumb rednecks. Jens responded with a smirk.
2: When I look back at these recordings, these video recordings of me testifying, I can see that I'm hurting myself by the way I acted back then. And I'm I'm embarrassed and ashamed. And I know why I acted that way because I was so scared, right? But people can't see that. And, and I know that, you know, that, that only ended up hurting me. On the other hand, I don't think there was a chance in hell that they were not going to convict me at that trial. I had no chance.
0: Watching the trial unfold, Fokey had doubts about Yen's guilt.
1: I told Updike the afternoon that he got the conviction that I thought they had convicted the wrong person. I had known Updike. I, I lived in Bedford, so I spent a lot of time at that courthouse. Updike and I had a passing in the hallway, sort of, hey, how are you, relationship. And I was in a lot of his courts, so I said to him, I thought he got the wrong guy. And he said, well, we got somebody. And and he thought, I'm sure that he thought he had the right person.
0: After the verdict, several people recall Prosecutor Updike and his wife, Marilyn, hosting a party at their lake house to celebrate. Mrs. Updike also had yellow t-shirts made with the words, Local Yokel and I survived the soaring trial. According to Jens, she had them taken to jail for him to autograph. He declined. Jens spent the next two decades in prison. Various appeals failed and parole was denied. But in 2010, Virginia Governor Tim Kaine agreed to send Jens back to Germany to finish serving his sentence. But before it could happen, the incoming governor, Bob McDonnell, blocked the transfer. The move was devastating to Jens, but it would connect him with a fierce advocate.
3: I'm Stephen Rosenfield. I've been practicing law since 1977 here in Charlottesville. A dominant part of my practice has been civil rights, criminal defense work, with an emphasis in capital cases.
0: Steve lives about a half an hour outside of Charlottesville with his wife, Kathleen. That's where we interviewed him one Saturday morning. His three-legged rescue dog greeted us at the door, and he appeared with coffee in his mug with the Bill of Rights that disappears when the coffee is hot.
3: You know, I guess because of my politics, I, I don't really care about suing public officials and... I sued Governor McDonnell, uh, the lawsuit lasted about a year and a half. Uh, we lost in the trial court and then the Supreme Court of Virginia refused to accept the case. And that was the formation of my relationship with Jens. There w- were no lawyers left who were willing to help Jens, with whom I now had a r- relationship uh, and who took some time to explain what had happened to him at trial. That piqued my curiosity.
0: As he looked into the original investigation of the Hasem's murders and the ends trial, Steve saw major issues.
3: There were shoe prints at the crime scene. We looked back at the testimony of the experts who talked about it, uh, in actuality, some of uh, the experts were not called by the prosecution because they excluded Jens soaring. They excluded mom and dad. So whose shoe prints are those?
0: And remember, Elizabeth's description of Yen's the night of the murders. She said he pulled up in the rental car in Washington, wrapped in a bloody sheet. Well, Bedford investigator Chuck Reed luminoled that rental car and found no traces of blood.
3: The jury never heard that. Chuck Reed was subpoenaed by the prosecution at the trial, and he stood outside the courtroom the entire time, never called by the defense, and certainly not by the prosecution.
0: And how about that bloody sock print, the one they compared to Jens' print at trial?
3: And it matches, and it fits
2: like a blood.
0: One juror said the bloody sock print was the biggest reason they believed Jens was guilty.
3: We now know that that was just junk science, and... There was evidence back then that contradicted this notion that a sock print was reliable, but the defense never bothered to contact experts.
0: Steve also thought Yen's confession wasn't believable.
3: could not get straight what the decedents were wearing, where they were located. This is a classic case of law enforcement finding a quick end. To the investigation when they got a confession and never bothered to take it apart to see if it's a bona fide confession. This case has all of the hallmarks of a false confession. He was 18 years old at the time the crimes were committed and 19 years old when he was interrogated in England. Uh, that age group is the most vulnerable for wanting to please authority for making irrational decisions about whether to confess Uh, he got facts wrong. Uh, It's a combination that our experts, uh, both in Great Britain and in this country, uh, have admitted that all of the uh, hallmark uh, factors were present in this case.
0: Between the problems with Jens' confession, the sock print junk science, and the evidence that the jury never heard, Steve became convinced that Jens had been wrongfully convicted. He worked pro bono to petition the governor for a pardon. He was hopeful their case would be persuasive, especially with the results of a 2009 DNA report on blood from the crime scene. That report showed that Yen's DNA wasn't there. But it would be several more years before a phone call between Steve and Jens Turn the case upside down.
2: Oh my God! I mean, Steve and I were shouting at each other, and he was so excited. At one point, he uh, he said, "Look, I gotta call somebody." And he just slammed down the phone. You know, we understood that up until that point, it was all about reasonable doubt, but now this was just a classic case of a DNA exoneration.
0: Next on Small Town Big Crime.
3: Uh, we now knew very specifically that Soaring could not have left his blood, but more importantly, it said so somebody else was at the crime scene with typo blood.
0: Hi, this is Courtney Stewart. If you're enjoying this podcast and appreciate our work, please consider supporting us on Patreon. This type of investigative journalism is labor-intensive and expensive. Rachel and I are working on a new case for season two, and we can't do it without your help. Check out our Patreon page, Small Town, Big Crime.
3: Hi, this is Rachel Ryan. When Courtney and I first started our podcast, we found the perfect place to work and network. Common House in Charlottesville. Now people in cities across the country and even around the world can benefit from a Common House membership. With other locations in Richmond and Chattanooga, Tennessee... Thousands of creative types, entrepreneurs, and other professionals like you are finding a social club that helps them make new connections both personal and professional. Each location offers gorgeous comfortable spaces for conversation, quiet spots for working, and tons of planned activities that spark conversation and networking. A Common House membership also comes with global benefits. You'll get access to dozens of clubs around the world from San Francisco to London to Auckland to Singapore. Don't just take our word for it. Come check out Common House yourself, and if you spot us there, say hello.